The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. message, The Big Bang. Um, <clears throat> I'm not so big on the Big Bang at the beginning of everything, but I am. there is going to be a Big Bang when everything ends, and uh, we'll, we'll look at that today. <clears throat> Eschatology is really not my wheelhouse. I am... Um, I admit I haven't spent the time, maybe the time I should have, studying the end times. I'm pretty simple about it. Number one, I know Jesus is going to win. Number two, I know that I'm going to be, I have the assurance that I'm going to be there with him in the end. Um, Number three, I won't everyone I know and beyond to have that same assurance. Um, I'm just not the guy that can, can't wait to talk to you about the millennium and revelations. And that, we've got some of those guys in the church, and I hope if you want to do that, you can go at it. But I am that guy who's interested in what's going on with your life today. And I'm pretty sure that's Peter's point as well. He's concerned with this church he's writing a letter to. He's not writing to the scoffers that he's talking about. He's not writing to the false teachers that he's talking about. He's writing to the church. Concerned about what's going on in their lives today. Not necessarily the end times. Now, last Sunday, just to give you a little review, we saw Peter encourage us um, and the people he's writing to not to be troubled by those scoffers. We see in verse 1 there. Um, they're to be expected. They're going to come. He went spent all of chapter 2 talking about these false teachers. And then there's some of them who uh, are going to be complaining about Jesus not coming and telling you that he's not going to come. It's been too long. It's been 40 years. We're dealing with 2,000 years, right? So they're to be expected. We see that in verses 1 through Then he reminds them, too, because they're saying, hey, nothing's changed. Nothing's happened since since the beginning of time. Why should we worry about God doing something different, something miraculous now? It's not going to happen. But then Peter says in verses 5 through 7, God's word is consistent. God created by his word. He says in verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water. We talked about that some. Everything hangs on the Word of God. 
Things haven't always been the same. God destroyed the world by his word in the flood. Every human being except eight people were destroyed. He reminds them that these scoffers are are, are just blinded by their own evil desires, so they really can't see things as they are. They really can't see the truth. Remember, the scoffers are to be expected. Remember that God's word is consistent. In verse 8, he says, Remember that God's take on time is different from ours. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Time is different with God. He's not outside of time. God works in time. His take on time is different from ours. He created it. Those people may have grown impatient over those 30 or 40 years since Jesus had ascended. It could be they were asking themselves, is he going to come back? Many of them thought he was coming back immediately. Something I thought of this week is that um, I think we're, we've grown impatient too in many ways. Not because we're asking those questions or talking about it in church necessarily, but we've grown impatient because we act like he's not coming back. There's no urgency in our evangelism. There's no godliness, seeking godliness in our lives like he's coming back tomorrow or before the sermon's over, which is, could be the long sermon. But, you know, even the Old Testament prophets before Jesus complained about the slowness of God. Remember, the scoffers are expected. God's word is consistent. God's take on time is different. God is, God is long-suffering. He's not slack. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. I use the word slack because the King James does. That's the best verse of all in, King, in the King James Version. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness. Now, I count slackness different, but that's, that's a whole other thing. But his long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. He's patient. That's what it is. Patient. Waiting for the elect to come to him. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't return the day before you got saved? That's why he's patient. I have family members who don't know the Lord, lost, going to hell. I pray every single day, God, just wait. Just be patient till they come to faith. At the same time, I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I'm ready. I want him to come today. I want him to deliver me from this sinful body and this sinful world. But I am grateful for his patience, because there are people there I love that don't know him. I want them to have that opportunity to profess Christ as Lord and Savior. The truth is, Christ will not return until all the sheep are in the fold. 
Not until all the elect have come to repentance. His delay is an act of mercy for some of you even. His delay is an act of mercy. God is patient. God's not slow. And then today we look at verses 10 through 13. Peter describes something else. doesn't necessarily mention Christ coming anymore, but we'll look at that. Certainly what he says is connected to Christ's return. And it's a term he uses, the day of the Lord, we see there in verse 10. Here's where we need to keep Peter's words in, in perspective and not take them out of context. Peter doesn't describe all the end-time events that will occur on that time he, he calls the day of the Lord. He doesn't mention everything that's going on. If these words that Steve read earlier were the only words about some eschatological event or some end-time event, if these are the only words in Scripture we had, I guess we'd all be amillennialist. Because he gives no timeline or any other details from the rest of Scripture. Specifically, it doesn't mention the millennium. It says nothing about the resurrection. It's implied, but he says nothing about it. He says little about judgment per se. He doesn't talk much about judgment of people. He talks about the judgment of the universe. But what he says is adequate enough to encourage us to consider, how do I respond in light of this? Now, there are some who believe that the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord are actually two separate events. The coming of Christ is that secret coming when he comes and raptures the saints, and the day of the Lord is that final judgment which occurs much later. They may be right. But Paul, like Peter, uses these two phrases interchangeably. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He uses them interchangeably. The Old Testament prophets talked about that day. That's actually where we get that phrase, the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation, destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Doesn't this sound like what Peter was talking about? The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. That's the day of the Lord he's talking about. Joel 1.15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and his destruction from the Almighty it comes. 
Chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Malachi 3, 2. I've sung this many times, and it's in Handel's Messiah. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. I believe the day of the Lord is a period of time, not just a day. That includes Christ's return and the judgment by destruction that Peter describes for us clearly here. Some ask the question, is it before the millennium? Is it after the millennium? Those things we can debate later because that's not Peter's purpose. Peter's not interested in us having an end-time discussion with this passage. It's about the church's call to faithfulness in those days as we march toward those days. Warren Wiersbe says, The purpose of prophecy is not speculation, but motivation. So we turn to the text. This text we're considering what is true about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It was promised back in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why does the apostle Peter, who is among those who heard this particular promise out of Acts chapter 1, about Christ's return, ascending and descending, what does he have to say about the day of the Lord? Verse 10, first thing he says, it will be unexpected. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will be unexpected. It comes like a, a thief in the night. Paul uses that language in First Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon him as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness. You know it's coming, you believers. They knew that already because it had been preached The disciples had heard Jesus say it in Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. The unexpected. The Lord's coming or the day of the Lord. There'll be no warning. It's going to be quite fearful for people. 
Remember that bombing in Manchester a week or so ago? There are people walking by that site where, where, where that bomb was, and all of a sudden, unexpectedly, boom, their lives are snuffed out. No thought of it. No chance to run. That's how this will be. We see Paul reminds for faithful Christians should not surprise you like a thief is coming in. He also says in First Thessalonians, Paul does, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Not because they know the day or the hour of His coming or the day or the hour of the day of the Lord. Not because some revelation pinpoints that day and that time of His coming. But because they obeyed what they were taught. Watch. Pay attention. There are just so many passages that faithfully remind us of these things. Mark 13, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know the time. Stay awake. But there is a message, too, for believers who do not watch, for believers who do not pay attention. For believers who do not stay awake, writing to the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, the words of the Lord, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. You will not wake up. I'll come like a thief. You'll not know at what hour I will come against you. Remember. Keep it. Repent. You brothers and sisters that aren't watching. Otherwise, the Lord is going to come as a thief to you as well. The first thing Peter tells us about this is that the Lord will come, the day of the Lord will come unannounced. Thief in the night. Then he tells us it will be cataclysmic. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are due to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The heavens will pass away with a roar That's the big bang I was talking about. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. 
The heavens will be destroyed by burning. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. First, a roar. That Greek word, that's a great Greek word there. I don't even know if I can say it right, but you know what onomatopoeia is, right? It is a word that sounds like what it says. Sounds like it means. It's in the case, in this case, like it's used as a, 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 a roaring fire. You could use it as the, uh, the whirring of a bird's wings. The word is hroisos. You have to say hroisos. A hroisedon is the actual word. That's, that's the roar. Peter didn't know atomic fusion. He didn't know nuclear fusion. Sounds as if that's what God will do, though. Nuclear explosions, the the roar of the blast, the wind of the blast, can knock a man down 25 miles away. Depending on the size, this is this is simple for Peter. Though to Peter, it's all going to burn up, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. It's about scoffers and the church, not the end time, because the heavens will will pass away; they'll, they'll disappear as. Some of your translations say, the Moffat translation says they'll vanish. We've been reminded of that over and over in Scripture. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Revelation 20, then I saw a great, a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And the, what you know from Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and her, new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This suggests that Peter is describing some sort of annihilation of the universe. Not simply some just fiery purification of it that, 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 that many people will teach, but it, it, it suggests some annihilation of it all. Not only the heavens pass away with a roar, but the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Some of your uh, translations use the word elements. The elements will melt. Heavenly bodies, in a sense, would tell us sun, moon, stars, those sorts of things. According to ancient Jewish belief, the last day, even the stars will be destroyed. But it might go deeper in that with the elements, especially when we're talking about fire. Someone said, atomic power is all around us. Let me share some of these things with you. Even the very breaths that we take in are filled with highly flammable and explosive gases. The water, which covers 75% of the Earth's surface, is composed of gases so explosive and volatile that any molecular change would result in the total destruction of the planet. Oxygen is required for all combustion. 
what fire feeds on. Take away oxygen, the fire dies. Turn it on, fire flares. Yet with every breath, we pull this highly explosive material into our bodies. Nitrogen is a component that makes dynamite, TNT, and nitroglycerin explosive. Yet every day we gulp massive quantities of nitrogen in the air we breathe. Cannot the same God who made these elements combine them in such a way that they don't explode? Well, apparently so. But a change of mixture would cause them to explode? Table salt. One-third sodium. Sodium is a gray, putty substance. Must be kept in kerosene so it won't explode. If a drop of water is placed on it, it results in a violent fire, and you eat it every day. Water is composed of oxygen, hydrogen. Both extremely explosive, yet combined in a manner that makes them safe. All God has to do is speak the word. The chemical arrangement is altered, and the world becomes a huge fuel dump. Yet we drink it every day. When the atoms split, chain chain reaction is, is set in motion that has the power to level cities and vaporize everything. Yet we're all made up of atoms. The earth is compared to a globular egg that's hard crust of the earth with this uh, semi-liquid center. In scale, the earth's crust is about the size of an eggshell in scale. The same thickness of an eggshell when compared to the vast sea of lava that's underneath. And there have been times when that has burst forth and killed thousands through volcanic eruption or um, earthquake. Yet we walk on that thin crust every day. Those are the elements that will simply melt as they burn. Isaiah 34, 4 says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. Now, verses 11 and 12 uses the word dissolve instead of melt. 12 uses melt at the end. All things will be dissolved. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. And then the third thing he says about how cataclysmic this will be the earth and the works, the works that are done on it, will be exposed. Now, your translation may use the word burned up. He's described a description of the universe. Attention is now given to the earth itself and exposed, or your translation may say found. There's confusion here. Some translators say burned up simply because of manuscript differences. There's debate over what Peter says here. 
as a result, since it's so crucial, there's debate over whether the universe is going to be replaced or whether it's going to be transformed. We can't go further into what, it, what all that means because, that, like I said, that wasn't Peter's purpose. And so, as a result, though, people have, this has led some people to suppose that Peter's talking about just a purification, to burn up the bad stuff, a purification of the universe instead of replacement, instead of annihilation of this present order. To me, it would seem if it's a purification, it would be more like the destruction under Noah. When the earth was destroyed, but not completely destroyed by the flood, not like it's being melted away into nothingness. The final judgment would, would need to... You, you see, fish survived the flood. Some plant life survived the flood. Humanity was destroyed except for eight people. But a final judgment would need to rid creation of any element... That was touched by sin. Rid creation that God called good. Rid creation of anything that was touched by sin. You know what was not touched by sin? Not a thing. This leads us to the next point. The day of the Lord is truly cataclysmic end of the earth and the universe as we know it. Do we become hopeless as a result? Should we fear this? No, because Peter says it will bring in all things new. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness. And this, and this is what he... He's, uh, John, John describes it. He describes it for us. He does a wonderful job doing it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. And God will be, himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe up. I want, I, want, I want that to be, if God's going to be with us, I want that to be somewhere new. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. John describes it wonderfully. Can't help but get excited when you read that description. It includes the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. For which the Old Testament... Saints looked forward to that as well. In that great chapter we call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, 
Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city, talking about all the faithful Old Testament believers. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verses 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The Old Testament saints were looking for it. New Testament saints, that's what we seek as well. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's the ultimate destiny of the redeemed. Hallelujah. And why can we count on it? Verse 13, but according to his promise. God has never made a promise to you that he's failed in. You can count on the promises of God. We look forward to that new heaven and the new earth, not because I can read Peter and I can see it and I believe it and, and, and it looks so real to me and I understand it completely. No, because God said so. Oh, I wish I had time. Go to Isaiah 65:17 when you get home, not now. You don't need to eat lunch. Just go home and read that. That's the promise. Oh, well, you're a captive audience. Go to Isaiah 65. I won't read it all. This is what Peter and John, this is, this, this, is what, this is what they were counting on. This is the promise. For behold, I create new heavens and a new, verse 17 of Isaiah 65, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad, rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like here but perfect. <laughs> You're still going to cut your grass in heaven. It's just not going to have weeds in it. They shall not build in another inhabit. It's not that you're not sitting on a cloud playing the harp. It's what movies have done to us. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eve. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And it goes on. 
That's the promise Peter is talking about. Those same themes show up in Revelation 21-22. We see that too. God has never failed to live up to His promises and He never will. Isaiah and Peter and John show us the promise of the new heaven and new earth and without question the important implication of that particular promise which is to be fulfilled in the day of the Lord is that it should inspire us to live holy lives. It should inspire holy living. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And they highlight, these verses highlight the connection between uh, 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 divine sovereignty and human will. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, everything, and we talked about it earlier, all I have is Christ. Everything we acquire in this life is going to be dissolved. It's going to melt up. Your wealth, all your stuff, even those things that aren't tangible, your physical relationships. We ought to be people of holy conduct and godliness. John Lennon, 1971. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. I don't know about that. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Your stuff. Bertrand Russell got the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. He wrote these words, There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment. Then nothing. The end that we consider is not nothingness, but blessedness to eternal life. Christian philosopher Peter Kreese said, If life on earth is not a road to heaven, then it is a treadmill, a merry-go-round minus the merry. The Apostle Paul talks about how we, how we, and many times when I do a funeral, I'll point to that casket, and Paul says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Robert Mounts, in relation to that passage, said, If, as Paul has it, what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Where we invest our time and energies of a crucial importance, frantic attempts to mount the ladder of material success amount to nothing more than scurrying to get the best deck chair on a sinking ship. We want our kids to have the best clothes. And by our actions, we teach them how important stuff is. The only thing that has promise of the life to come is godliness. 
Peter's talked about it. He, he talked about it in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3. I'm not going to share all those passages. 2 Peter 1, he talked about how godliness is important to the lives of these people who are waiting for the Lord to come. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Hmm. He also says that holy conduct is is able to store up a good foundation for the future in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's holy conduct. The day of the Lord ahead of us should inspire holy living. Waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Those who believe in life after death live happier lives and trust people more. Did you know that? Those who have assurance of an afterlife are more satisfied with this present life. The certainty of heaven helps us cope with the uncertainties of earth. True? And only those who are prepared to die can be ready to live. We look... For new heavens and a new earth, we certainly look for the coming of the day of God. We should hasten. He says, he uses the word hasten. That coming. Waiting for and hastening coming of the day of God. Now, don't be confused by that. We can't speed up the process. Peter's not saying that our actions are what ultimately determine the return of Jesus. Why? Because in Acts, we read God's already set the time. He already knows the time. The time is already set. But he reminds us that the ordained return of Jesus Christ will take place in union with the ordained means by which that takes place. Scripture tells us God knows the day when Christ returns. We can do nothing to change God's plan. But we learned last week that God's view of time is much different than our view of time in the sense that we can hasten it from our perspective, not from God's perspective, it may seem daunting when you look out there and you see all the lost, the masses of lost people. You don't know who God has chosen before the foundation of the world. So you've got a witness to all of them. That can be daunting. 
It's going to take forever to do that. You can hasten it by getting to work. What I think it means by hasten is that we can do certain things as our part to see God's promise fulfilled. So what do we do? Peter tells us, live godly lives. Live holy lives. Witness. For those of you who are here without Christ, repent and believe. He's being patient with you. Long-suffering with you. Waiting for you. God's patience is an act of mercy to you. Trust Him today. Let's pray. We'll sing a hymn in a moment. encourage you, if you have questions, you need someone to pray with you. Our elders and others will be in the back as we sing. You just make your way back there. Talk to them. They'll be waiting for you. Father, we thank you for your word, the gift of faith and trust that you've given us to believe your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you might take your word and change us. Do a work in our lives. May we commit in fresh ways today to lives of holiness and godliness as we watch and wait for the day of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.